Chapter 21 We Visit Kashmir You are strong enough now to travel. I will accompany you to Kashmir. Shri Yukteswar informed me two days after my miraculous recovery from Asiatic cholera. That evening, our party of six entrained for the north. Our first leisurely stop was at Simla, a queenly city resting on the throne of Himalayan hills. We strolled over the steep streets, admiring the magnificent views. English strawberries for sale, cried an old woman, squatting in a picturesque open marketplace. Master was curious about the strange little red fruits. He bought a large basket of them and offered it to Kanai and me, who were nearby. I tasted one berry but spat it hastily on the ground. Sir, what a sour fruit! I could never like strawberries. My guru laughed. Oh, you will like them in America. At a dinner there, your hostess will serve them with sugar and cream. After she has mashed the berries with a fork, you will taste them and say, What delicious strawberries! Then you will remember this day in Simla. Sri Yukteswar's forecast vanished from my mind, but reappeared there many years later, shortly after my arrival in America. I was a dinner guest at the home of Mrs. Alice T. Hasey, Sister Yoga Mata. In West Somerville, Massachusetts. When a dessert of strawberries was put on the table, my hostess picked up a fork and mashed my berries, adding cream and sugar. The fruit is rather tart. I think you'll like it fixed this way, she remarked. I took a mouthful. What delicious strawberries! I exclaimed. At once, my guru's prediction in Simla emerged from the fathomless cave of memory. I was awestruck to realize that long ago his God tuned mind had detected the program of karmic events wandering in the ether of futurity. Our party soon left Simla and entrained for Raulpindi. There we hired a large closed top landau drawn by two horses for a seven day trip to Srinagar, capital of Kashmir. The second day of our northbound journey brought into view the true Himalayan vastness. As the iron wheels of our carriage creaked along the hot, stony roads, we were enraptured with changing vistas of mountainous grandeur. Sir, Audi said to Master, I am greatly enjoying these glorious scenes in your holy company. I felt a throb of pleasure at Audi's appreciation, for I was acting as host on this trip. Sri Yukteswar caught my thought. He turned to me and whispered, Don't flatter yourself. Audi is not nearly as entranced with the scenery as he is with the prospect of leaving us long enough to have a cigarette. I was shocked. Sir, I said in an undertone, please do not break a harmony by these unpleasant words. I can hardly believe that Audi is hankering for a smoke. I looked apprehensively at my usually irrepressible guru. Very well, I won't say anything to Audi, Master chuckled, but you will soon see, when the Landau halts, that he's quick to seize his opportunity. The carriage arrived at a small caravanserai. As our horses were led to be watered, Audi inquired, Sir, do you mind if I ride a while with the driver? I would like to get a little outside air. Sri Yukteswar gave permission, but remarked to me, He wants fresh smoke and not fresh air. The Landau resumed its noisy progress over the dusty roads. Master's eyes were twinkling. He instructed me, Crane up your neck through the carriage door and see what Audi is doing with the air. I obeyed, and was startled to observe Audi in the act of exhaling rings of cigarette smoke, 
My glance toward Sri Yukteswar was apologetic. You are right, as always, sir. Audi is enjoying a puff along with the panorama. I surmised that my friend had received a gift from the cab driver. I knew that Audi had not carried any cigarettes from Calcutta. We continued on the labyrinthine way, delighting in views of rivers, valleys, precipitous crags, and multitudinous mountain tiers. Each night we stopped at a rustic inn and cooked our food. Sri Yukteswar took special care of my diet, insisting that I have lime juice at all meals. I was still weak, but daily improving, though the rattling carriage had been strictly designed for discomfort. Joyous anticipations filled our hearts as we neared central Kashmir. Paradise land of lotus lakes, floating gardens, gaily canopied houseboats, the many-bridged Jhelum River, and flower-strewn pastures, all encircled by the Himalayas. Our approach to Srinagar was through an avenue of tall, welcoming trees. We engaged rooms at a double-storied inn overlooking the noble hills. No running water was available. We drew our supply from a nearby well. The summer weather was ideal, warm days and slightly cold nights. We made a pilgrimage to an ancient Srinagar temple, dedicated to Swami Shankara, as I gazed upon the mountain peak hermitage, bold against the sky, I fell into an ecstatic trance. A vision appeared of a hilltop mansion in a distant land. The lofty Shankara temple in Srinagar became transformed into the edifice where, years later, I established Self-Realization Fellowship Headquarters in America. When I first visited Los Angeles and saw the large building on the crest of Mount Washington, I recognized it at once from my long-past visions in Kashmir and elsewhere. A few days in Srinagar, then on to Gulmarg, mountain paths of flowers. Eighty-five hundred feet high, there I had my first ride on a large horse. Rajendra mounted a small trotter, one whose heart was fired by ambition for speed. We ventured onto the very steep Kilanmarg. The path led through a dense forest, abounding in tree mushrooms, where the mist-shrouded trails were often precarious. But Rajendra's little animal never permitted my oversized steed a moment's rest, even at the most perilous turns. On, on, untiringly came Rajendra's horse, oblivious to all but the joy of competition. Our strenuous race was rewarded by a breathtaking view. For the first time in this life, I gazed in all directions at sublime, snow-capped, Himalayas, lying tier upon tier like silhouettes of huge polar bears. My eyes feasted exultingly on endless reaches of icy mountains against sunny blue skies. I rode merrily with my young companions, all wearing overcoats, on the sparkling white slopes. On our downward trip we saw afar a vast carpet of yellow flowers, wholly transfiguring the bleak hills. Our next excursions were to the famous pleasure gardens of Emperor Jahangir at Shalimar and Nishat Bagh. The ancient palace at Nishat Bagh is built directly over a natural waterfall. Rushing down from the mountains, the torrent has been regulated through ingenious contrivances to flow over colourful terraces and to gush into fountains amidst the dazzling flowerbeds. The stream also enters several of the palace rooms, ultimately dropping fairy-like, into the lake below. The immense gardens are riotous with colour, 
rose, jasmine, lilies, snapdragons, pansies, lavender, poppies. An emerald encirclement is formed by symmetrical rows of chinars, the oriental plane tree. Cypresses, cherry trees, beyond them tower the white austerities of the Himalayas. So-called Kashmir grapes are considered a rare delicacy in Calcutta. Rajendra, who had been talking about the grape feast awaiting us in Kashmir, was disappointed to find there no large vineyards. Now and then I chaffed him over his baseless anticipation. Oh, I have become so much gorged with grapes. I can't walk, I would say. The invisible grapes are brewing within me. Later we heard that sweet grapes grow abundantly in Kabul, west of Kashmir. We consoled ourselves with ice cream made of rabri, heavily condensed milk, flavoured with whole pistachio nuts. We took several trips in shikaras, small boats shaded by red-embroidered canopies, coursing along the intricate channels of Dal Lake, a network of canals like a watery spiderweb. Here the numerous floating gardens, crudely improvised with logs and earth, strike one with amazement. So incongruous is the first sight of vegetables and melons growing in the midst of vast waters. Occasionally one sees a peasant, disdaining to be rooted to the soil, tying his square plot of land to a new location in the many-fingered lake. In this storied vale one finds an epitome of all the earth's beauties. The Lady of Kashmir is mountain-crowned, lake-garlanded and flower-shod. In later years, after I had toured many countries, I understood why Kashmir is often called the world's most scenic spot. It possesses some of the charms of the Swiss Alps and of Loch Lomond in Scotland and of the exquisite English lakes. An American traveller in Kashmir finds much to remind him of the rugged grandeur of Alaska and of Pike's Peak near Denver. As entries in a scenic beauty contest, I offer for first prize either the gorgeous view of Hoximilco in Mexico, where skies, mountains and poplars are reflected amid playful fish in myriad lanes of water, or the lakes of Kashmir, guarded like beautiful maidens by the stern surveillance of the Himalayas. These two places stand out in my memory as the loveliest spots on earth. Yet I was awed also when I beheld the wonders of Yellowstone National Park and of the Grand Canyon of the Colorado and of Alaska. Yellowstone is perhaps the only region on earth where one may see numerous geysers erupting high in the air with almost clock-like regularity. In this volcanic area, nature has left a specimen of an earlier creation. Hot sulphurous springs opal and sapphire-coloured pools, violent geysers, and freely roaming bears, wolves, bison and other wild creatures. Motoring along the roads of Wyoming to the devil's paint pot of bubbling hot mud, observing the gurgling springs, spouting geysers, and vaporous fountains, I was disposed to say that Yellowstone deserves a special prize for uniqueness. At Yosemite Park in California, the ancient majestic sequoias stretching huge columns far into the sky are green, natural cathedrals designed with skill divine. Though there are wonderful falls in the Orient, none match the torrential beauty of Niagara in New York on the Canadian border. Mammoth Cave in Kentucky and Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico are strange fairy lands. Long stalactites 
hanging from cave ceilings and mirrored in underground waters, present a glimpse of other worlds as fancied by man. In Kashmir, a large number of the people, world-famed for their beauty, are as white as Europeans and have similar features and bone structure. Many are blue-eyed and blonde-haired. Dressed in Western clothes, they look like Americans. The coldness of the Himalayas affords the Kashmiris relief from the sultry sun and preserves their light complexions. As one travels south to the tropical latitudes of India, he finds progressively that the people are darker and darker. After spending happy weeks in Kashmir, I was forced to make preparations to return to Bengal for the fall term of Serampur College. Sri Yukteswar, Kanai and Audi were to remain in Srinagar a while longer. Shortly before I departed, Master hinted that his body would be subject to suffering in Kashmir. Sir, you look a picture of health, I protested. There is a chance that I may even leave this earth. Guruji, I fell at his feet with an imploring gesture. Please promise that you won't leave your body now. I am utterly unprepared to carry on without you. Sri Yukteswar was silent, but smiled at me so compassionately that I felt reassured. Reluctantly I left him. Master, dangerously ill. This telegram from Audi reached me shortly after my return to Sarampur. Sir, I wired my guru frantically. I ask for your promise not to leave me. Please keep your body, otherwise I also shall die. Be it as you wish. This was Master's reply from Kashmir. A letter from Audi arrived in a few days, informing me that Master had recovered. On his return to Serampur during the next fortnight, I was grieved to find my guru's body reduced to half its usual weight. Fortunately for his disciples, Sri Yukteswar burned many of their sins in the fire of his severe fever in Kashmir. The metaphysical method of physical transfer of disease is known to highly advanced yogis. A strong man may assist a weak one by helping the latter to carry a heavy load. A spiritual superman is able to minimize the physical and mental troubles of his disciples by assuming a part of their karmic burdens. Just as a rich man relinquishes some money when he pays off a large debt for his prodigal son, who is thus saved from the dire consequences of his folly, so a master willingly sacrifices a portion of his bodily wealth to lighten the misery of disciples. By a secret yogic method, the saint unites his mind and astral vehicle with those of a suffering individual. The disease is conveyed wholly or in part to the yogi's fleshly form. Having harvested God on the physical field, a master is no longer concerned with his body. Though he may allow it to become diseased in order to relieve other persons, his mind, unpollutable, is not affected. He considers himself fortunate in being able to render such aid. To achieve final salvation in the Lord is indeed to find that the human body has completely fulfilled its purpose. A master then uses it in any way he deems fit. A guru's work in the world is to alleviate the sorrows of mankind, whether through spiritual means, or intellectual counsel, or willpower, or physical transfer of disease. Escaping to the superconsciousness, 
whenever he so desires, a master can become oblivious of physical illness. Sometimes, to set an example for disciples, he chooses to bear bodily pain stoically. By putting on the ailments of others, a yogi can satisfy for them the karmic law of cause and effect. This law is mechanically or mathematically operative. Its workings may be scientifically manipulated by men of divine wisdom. The spiritual law does not require a master to become ill whenever he heals another person. Healings ordinarily take place through the saint's knowledge of various methods of instantaneous cure in which no hurt to the spiritual healer is involved. On rare occasions, however, a master who wishes to quicken greatly his disciple's evolution may then voluntarily work out on his own body a large measure of their undesirable karma. Jesus signified himself as a ransom for the sins of many. With his divine powers, Christ could never have been subjected to death by crucifixion if he had not willingly cooperated with the subtle cosmic law of cause and effect. He thus took on himself the consequences of others' karma, especially that of his disciples. In this manner they were highly purified and made fit to receive the omnipresent consciousness or Holy Ghost that later descended upon them. Only a self-realized master can transfer his life force or convey into his own body the diseases of others. An ordinary man cannot employ this yogic method of cure, nor is it desirable that he should do so, because an unsound physical instrument is a hindrance to deep meditation. The Hindu scriptures teach that an imperative duty of man is to keep his body in good condition, otherwise his mind is unable to remain fixed in devotional concentration. A very strong mind, however, can transcend all physical difficulties and attain to God-realization. Many saints have ignored illness and succeeded in their divine quest. St. Francis of Assisi, himself severely afflicted with ailments, healed other men and even raised the dead. I once knew an Indian saint, half of whose body in his earlier years had been covered with sores. His diabetic illness had been so acute that he had found it difficult to sit still at one time for more than fifteen minutes. But his spiritual aspiration had been undeterrable. Lord, he had prayed, would thou come into my broken temple. With ceaseless command of will, the saint had gradually become able to sit in the lotus posture daily for eighteen hours, engrossed in the ecstatic trance. And, he told me, at the end of three years, I found the infinite light blazing within me. Rejoicing in its splendor, I forgot the body. Later I saw that it had become whole through the divine mercy. A historical healing incident concerns King Baba, 1483-1530, founder of the Mughal Empire in India. His son, Humayun became gravely ill. The father prayed with anguished determination that he receive the malady and that his son be spared. Humayun recovered. Babur immediately fell sick and died of the same disease that had stricken his son. Many persons believe that a great master should have the health and strength of a sandal. The assumption is unfounded. 
A sickly body does not indicate that a guru is lacking in divine powers any more than lifelong health necessarily indicates inner illumination. The distinguishing qualifications of a master are not physical but spiritual. Numerous bewildered seekers in the West erroneously think that an eloquent speaker or writer on metaphysics must be a master. Proof that one is a master, however, is supplied only by the ability to enter at will the breathless state, sabhikalpa samadhi, and by the attainment of immutable bliss, nirbhikalpa samadhi. The rishis have pointed out that solely by these achievements may a human being demonstrate that he has mastered maya, the dualistic cosmic delusion. He alone may say from the depths of realization, Ekam Sat, only one exists. When there is duality, because of ignorance, one sees all things as distinct from the self. Shankara, the great monist, has written, When everything is known as the self, not even an atom is seen as other than the self. As soon as knowledge of the reality has sprung up, there can be no fruits of past actions to be experienced owing to the unreality of the body, just as there can be no dream after waking. Only great gurus are able to assume the karma of disciples. Sri Yukteswar would not have suffered in Srinagar unless he had received permission from the spirit within him to help his disciples in that strange way. Few saints were ever more sensitively equipped with wisdom to carry out divine commands than my God-tuned master. When I ventured a few words of sympathy over his emaciated figure, my guru said gaily, It has its good points. I am now able to get into some small Ganges undershirts that I haven't worn for years. Listening to master's jovial laugh, I remembered the words of St. Francis de Sales, A saint that is sad is a sad saint. Chapter 22 The Heart of a Stone Image As a loyal Hindu wife, I do not wish to complain of my husband, but I yearn to see him turn from his materialistic views. He delights in ridiculing the pictures of saints in my meditation room. Dear brother, I have deep faith that you can help him. Will you? My eldest sister, Roma, gazed beseechingly at me. I was paying a short visit at her Calcutta home on Girish Vidyaratna Lane. Her plea touched me, for she had exercised a profound spiritual influence over my early life and had lovingly tried to fill the void left in the family circle by mother's death. Beloved sister, of course, I will do anything I can. I smiled, eager to lift the gloom plainly visible on her face, in contrast to her usual calm and cheerful expression. Roma and I sat a while in silent prayer for guidance. A year earlier, my sister had asked me to initiate her in Kriya Yoga, in which she was making notable progress. An inspiration seized me. Tomorrow, I said, I am going to the temple of Kali in Dakshineshwar. Please come with me and persuade your husband to accompany us. I feel that in the vibrations of that holy place 
Divine Mother will touch his heart, but don't disclose our object in wanting him to go. Sister agreed, hopefully. Very early the next morning, I was pleased to find that Roma and her husband were in readiness for the trip. As our hackney carriage rattled along Upper Circular Road towards Dakshineswar, my brother-in-law, Satish Chandra Bose, amused himself by deriding the worth of gurus. I noticed that Roma was quietly weeping. Sister, cheer up, I whispered. Don't give your husband the satisfaction of believing that we take his mockery seriously. Mukunda, how can you admire worthless humbugs, Satish was saying. A sadhu's very appearance is repulsive. He's either as thin as a skeleton or as unholily fat as an elephant. I shook with laughter, a reaction that annoyed Satish. He retired into sullen silence. As our cab entered the temple grounds in Dakshineswar, he grinned sarcastically. This excursion, I suppose, is a scheme to reform me. As I turned away without reply, he caught my arm. Young Mr. Monk, he said, don't forget to make proper arrangements with the temple authorities to provide for our noon meal. Satish wished to spare himself any conversation with priests. I am going to meditate now. Do not worry about your lunch, I replied sharply. Divine Mother will look after it. I don't trust Divine Mother to do a single thing for me, but I do hold you responsible for my food. Satish's tones were threatening. I proceeded along to the portico that fronts the large temple of Kali, God in the aspect of Mother Nature. Selecting a shady spot near one of the pillars, I sat down and assumed the lotus posture. Although it was only about seven o'clock, the morning sun would soon be oppressive. The world receded as I became devotionally entranced. My mind was concentrated on Goddess Kali, her statue in this very temple in Dakshineswar had been the special object of adoration by the great master, Sri Ramakrishna Paramahansa. In answer to his anguished demands, the stone image had often taken a living form and conversed with him. Silent mother of stone, I prayed, thou didst become filled with life at the plea of thy beloved devotee Ramakrishna. Why dost thou not also heed the wails of this yearning son of thine. My aspiring zeal increased boundlessly, accompanied by divine peace. Yet, when five hours had passed, and the goddess whom I was inwardly visualizing had made no response, I felt slightly disheartened. Sometimes it is a test by God to delay the fulfillment of prayers, but he eventually appears to the persistent devotee, in whatever form he holds dear. A devout Christian sees Jesus, a Hindu beholds Krishna or the goddess Kali, or an expanding light if his worship takes an impersonal turn. Reluctantly, I opened my eyes and saw that the temple doors were being locked by a priest, in conformance with a noon-hour custom. I rose from my secluded seat on the portico and stepped into the courtyard. Its stone surface was scorched by the midday sun. My bare feet were painfully burned. Divine Mother, I silently remonstrated, thou didst not come to me in vision, and now thou art hidden in the temple behind closed doors. I wanted to offer a special prayer to thee today on behalf of my brother-in-law. My inward petition 
was instantly acknowledged. First, a delightful cold wave descended over my back and under my feet, banishing all discomfort. Then, to my amazement, the temple became greatly magnified. Its large door slowly opened, revealing the stone figure of Goddess Kali. Gradually, the statue changed into a living form, smilingly nodding in greeting, thrilling me with joy indescribable. As if by a mystic syringe, the breath was withdrawn from my lungs. My body became very still, though not inert. An ecstatic enlargement of consciousness followed. I could see clearly for several miles over the Ganges River to my left, and beyond the temple into the entire Dakshineswar precincts. The walls of all buildings glimmered transparently. Through them, I observed people walking to and fro over distant acres. Though I was breathless, and though my body remained in a strangely quiet state, I was able to move my hands and feet freely. For several minutes, I experimented in closing and opening my eyes. In either state, I saw distinctly the whole Dakshineswar panorama. Spiritual sight, X-ray-like, penetrates into all matter. The divine eye is centre everywhere. Circumference, nowhere. I realised anew, standing there in the sunny courtyard, that when man ceases to be a prodigal child of God, engrossed in a physical world, indeed dream, baseless as a bubble, he re-inherits his eternal realms. If escapism be a need of man, cramped in his narrow personality, can any other escape compare with that of omnipresence? In my sacred experience at Dakshineswar, the only extraordinarily enlarged objects were the temple and the form of the goddess. Everything else appeared in its normal dimensions, although each was enclosed in a halo of mellow light, white, blue, and pastel rainbow hues. My body seemed to be of ethereal substance, ready to levitate. Fully conscious of my material surroundings, I was looking about me and taking a few steps without disturbing the continuity of the blissful vision. Behind the temple walls, I suddenly glimpsed my brother-in-law, as he sat under the thorny branches of a sacred bell-tree, I could effortlessly discern the course of his thoughts. Somewhat uplifted under the holy influence of Dakshineswar, his mind yet held unkind reflections about me. I turned directly to the gracious form of the goddess. Divine Mother, I prayed, wilt thou not spiritually change my sister's husband? The beautiful figure, hitherto silent, spoke at last. Thy wish is granted. I looked happily at Satish. As though instinctively aware that some spiritual power was at work, he rose resentfully from his seat on the ground. I saw him running behind the temple. He approached me, shaking his fist. The all-embracing vision disappeared. No longer could I see the glorious goddess. The temple lost its transparency and resumed its ordinary dimensions. Again my body sweltered, out of the fierce rays of the sun, I jumped to the shelter of the portico, to which Satish pursued me angrily. I looked at my watch. It was one o'clock. The divine vision had lasted an hour. You little fool, my brother-in-law blurted out. You've been sitting there cross-legged and cross-eyed for hours. 
I have gone back and forth watching you. Where is our food? Now the temple is closed. You failed to notify the authorities about us. It's too late to arrange for our lunch. The exultation I had felt at the goddess's presence lingered with me. I exclaimed, Divine Mother will feed us. Once and for all, Satish shouted, I would like to see your Divine Mother giving us food here without prior arrangements. His words were hardly uttered when a temple priest crossed the courtyard and joined us. Son, he addressed me, I have been observing your face serenely glowing during hours of meditation. I saw the arrival of your party this morning and felt a desire to put aside ample food for your lunch. It is against the temple rules to feed those who do not make a request beforehand, but I have made an exception for you. I thanked him and gazed straight into Satish's eyes. He flushed with emotion, lowering his gaze in silent repentance. When we were served a lavish meal, including out-of-season mangoes, I noticed that my brother-in-law's appetite was meagre. He was bewildered, diving deep into the ocean of thought. On the return journey to Calcutta, Satish, with softened expression, occasionally glanced at me pleadingly. But he did not speak a single word after the moment the priest, as though in answer to Satish's challenge, had appeared to invite us to lunch. The following afternoon, I visited my sister at her home. She greeted me affectionately. Dear brother, she cried, what a miracle. Last evening my husband wept openly before me. Beloved Davy, he said, I am happy beyond expression that this reforming scheme of your brother's has wrought a transformation. I am going to undo every wrong I have done you. From tonight we will use our large bedroom only as a place of worship. Your small meditation room shall be changed into our sleeping quarters. I am sincerely sorry that I have ridiculed your brother. For the shameful way I have been acting, I will punish myself by not talking to Mukunda until I have progressed in the spiritual path. Deeply I will seek the Divine Mother from now on. Some day I must surely find her. Years later, in 1936, I visited Satish in Delhi, I was overjoyed to perceive that he had developed highly in self-realization and had been blessed by a vision of the Divine Mother. During my stay with him, I noticed that Satish secretly spent the greater part of each night in deep meditation. Though he was suffering from a serious ailment and was engaged during the day at his office, the thought came to me that my brother-in-law's lifespan would not be a long one. Roma must have read my mind. Dear brother, she said, I am well and my husband is sick. Nevertheless, I want you to know that as a devoted Hindu wife, I am going to be the first one to die. It won't be long now before I pass on. Taken aback at her ominous words, I yet realized their sting of truth. I was in America when my sister died, about eighteen months after her prediction. My youngest brother, Bishnu, later gave me the details. Roma and Satish were in Calcutta at the time of her death, Vishnu told me. That morning she dressed herself in her bridal finery. Why this special costume? Satish inquired. This is my last day of service to you on earth, Roma replied. A short time later she had a heart attack. As her son was rushing out for aid, she said, Son, do not leave me. 
It is no use. I shall be gone before a doctor could arrive. Ten minutes later, holding the feet of her husband in reverence, Roma consciously left her body, happily and without suffering. Satish became very reclusive after his wife's death, Bishnu continued. One day, he and I were looking at a photograph of a smiling Roma. Why do you smile? Satish suddenly exclaimed, as though his wife were present. You think you were clever in arranging to go before me? I shall prove that you cannot long remain away from me. Soon I shall join you. Although at this time Satish had fully recovered from his sickness and was enjoying excellent health, he died without apparent cause shortly after his strange remark before the photograph. Thus prophetically passed both my beloved sister Roma and her husband Satish, he who had been transformed at Dakshineshwar from an ordinary worldly man to a silent saint. Chapter 23 I Receive My University Degree You ignore your textbook assignments in philosophy. No doubt you are depending on an unlaborious intuition to get you through the examinations. But unless you apply yourself in a more scholarly manner, I shall see to it that you don't pass this course. Professor D.C. Goshal of Serampore College was addressing me sternly. If I failed to pass his final written classroom test, I would be ineligible to take the conclusive examinations. These are formulated by the Faculty of Calcutta University, which numbers Serampore College among its affiliated branches. In Indian universities, a student who is unsuccessful in one subject in the AB finals must be examined anew in all his subjects the following year. My instructors at Serampore College usually treated me with kindness, not untinged with amusement. Mukunda is a bit overdrunk with religion. Thus, summing me up, they tactfully spared me the embarrassment of trying to answer classroom questions. They trusted the final written tests to eliminate me from the list of A.B. candidates. The judgment passed by my fellow students was expressed in their nickname for me, Mad Monk. I took an ingenious step to nullify Professor Goschel's threat to me of failure in philosophy. When the results of the final tests were about to be publicly announced, I asked a classmate to accompany me to the professor's study. Come along, I want a witness, I told my companion. I shall be very much disappointed if I have not succeeded in outwitting the instructor. Professor Goschel shook his head after I had inquired what rating he had given my paper. You're not among those who have passed, he said in triumph. He searched through a large pile of sheets on his desk. Your paper isn't here at all. You failed, in any case, through non-appearance at the examination. I chuckled. Sir, I was there. May I look through the stack myself? The professor, nonplussed, gave his permission. I quickly found my paper, from which I had carefully omitted any identification mark except my roll-call number. Unwarned by the red flag of my name, the instructor had given a high rating to my answers, even though they were unembellished by textbook quotations. Seeing through my trick, he now thundered. Sheer brazen luck, he added hopefully. You're sure to fail in the A.B. finals. For the tests in my other subjects, I received some coaching, particularly from my dear friend and cousin, Prabhas Chandra Ghosh, 
son of my uncle Sarada. I staggered painfully but successfully with the lowest possible passing marks through all my final tests. Now, after four years of college, I was eligible to sit for the A.B. examinations. Nevertheless, I hardly expected to avail myself of the privilege. The Serampore College finals were child's play compared to the stiff ones that would be set by Calcutta University for the A.B. degree. My almost daily visits to Sri Yukteswar had left me little time to enter the college halls. There my presence rather than my absence would cause my classmates to exclaim in surprise. The routine I followed almost every day started with me setting out on a bicycle at 9.30 in the morning. In one hand, I would carry an offering for my guru, a few flowers from the garden of my panty boarding house. Greeting me affably, Master would invite me to lunch. I invariably accepted with alacrity, glad to banish the thought of college for the day. After hours with Sri Yukteswar, listening to his incomparable flow of wisdom or helping with ashram duties, I would reluctantly depart around midnight for the panti. Occasionally, I stayed all night with my guru, so happily engrossed in his conversation that I scarcely noticed when darkness changed into dawn. One night, about eleven o'clock, as I was putting on my shoes, a disciple always removes his shoes in an Indian hermitage, in preparation for the ride to the boarding-house, Master questioned me gravely, When do your A.B. examinations start? Five days hence, sir. I hope you are in readiness for them. Transfixed with alarm, I held one shoe in the air. Sir, I protested, you know that my days have been passed with you, rather than with the professors. How can I bring myself to an act of farce by appearing for those difficult finals? Sri Yukteswar's eyes were turned piercingly on mine. You must appear. His tone was coldly peremptory. We should not give cause for your father and other relatives to criticise your preference for ashram life. Just promise me that you will be present for the examinations. Answer them the best way you can. Uncontrollable tears were coursing down my face. I felt that my master's command was unreasonable, and that his interest was, to say the least, belated. I will appear, if you wish, I said with a sob, but no time remains for proper preparation. To myself, I muttered, in answer to the questions, I will fill up the sheets with your teachings. When I entered the hermitage the following day, at my usual hour, I presented my bouquet mournfully to Sri Yukteswar. He laughed at my woebegone air. Mukunda, has the Lord ever failed you? At an examination or elsewhere? No, sir, I responded warmly. Grateful memories came in a revivifying flood. Not laziness, but burning zeal for God has prevented you from seeking college honours, my guru said kindly. After a silence, he quoted, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. For the thousandth time I felt my burdens lifted in Master's presence. When we had finished our early lunch, he suggested that I return to the Panti. Does your friend Ramesh Chandra Dutt still live in your boarding-house? Yes, sir. Get in touch with him. The Lord will inspire him to help you with the examinations. Very well, sir, but Ramesh is unusually busy. 
He is the honor man in our class and carries a heavier course than the others. Master waved aside my objections. Ramesh will find time for you. Go now. I bicycled back to the panty. The first person I met in the boarding house compound was the scholarly Ramesh. As though his days were quite free, he obligingly agreed to my diffident request. Of course, I am at your service. He spent many hours of that day and of each of the next few days in coaching me in my various subjects. I believe that many questions in the English literature examination will concern the route taken by Child Harold, he told me. We must get an atlas at once. I hastened to the home of Uncle Sarada and borrowed an atlas. Ramesh marked the European map at the places visited by Byron's romantic traveller. A few classmates had gathered around to listen to the tutoring. Ramesh is advising you wrongly, one of them commented to me at the end of a session. Usually, only 50% of the questions are about the books. The other half involve the author's lives. When I sat for the examination in English literature, my first glance at the questions caused tears of gratitude to pour down my cheeks, wetting my paper. The classroom monitor came to my desk and made a sympathetic inquiry. My great guru foretold that Ramesh would help me, I explained. Look, the very questions suggested to me by Ramesh are here on the examination sheet. I added, fortunately for me, there are very few questions this year on British authors whose lives are wrapped in deep mystery so far as I'm concerned. My boarding house was in an uproar when I returned. The boys who had been ridiculing me for my faith in Ramesh's coaching now almost deafened me with congratulations. During the week of the examinations, I continued to spend as much time as possible with Ramesh, who formulated questions that he thought were likely to be set by the professors. Day by day, Ramesh's questions appeared in almost the same words on the examination sheets. The news was widely circulated in the college that something resembling a miracle was occurring and that success seemed probable for the absent-minded mad monk. I made no attempt to hide the facts of the case. The local professors were powerless to alter the questions, which had been arranged by the faculty of Calcutta University. Thinking over the examination in English literature, I realised one morning that I had made a serious error. Certain questions had been divided into two parts, A or B and C or D. Instead of considering one question in each part, I had answered both questions in the first section and had carelessly overlooked the second section. The best mark I could possibly score in that paper would be 33, three points less than the passing mark of 36. I rushed to Master and poured out my troubles. Sir, I have made an unpardonable blunder. I don't deserve the divine blessings through Ramesh. I am quite unworthy. Cheer up, Makunda. Sri Yukteswar's tones were light and unconcerned. He pointed to the blue vault of the heavens. It is more likely that the sun and moon will interchange their positions in space than that you will fail to get your degree. I left the hermitage in a more tranquil mood, though it seemed mathematically inconceivable that I could pass. I looked once or twice apprehensively into the sky. The Lord of Day appeared to be secure in his customary orbit.
As I reached the Panthi, I overheard a classmate's remark. I've just learned that this year, for the first time, the required passing mark in English literature has been lowered. I entered the boy's room with such speed that he looked up in alarm. I questioned him eagerly. Long-haired monk, he said laughingly, why this sudden interest in scholastic matters? Why cry in the eleventh hour? But it is true that the passing mark has just been lowered to thirty-three points. A few joyous leaps took me to my own room, where I sank to my knees and praised the mathematical perfections of my divine father. Each day I thrilled with the consciousness of a spiritual presence that I clearly felt to be guiding me through Ramesh. A significant incident occurred in connection with my examination in the Bengali language course. One morning, Ramesh, who had not coached me on that subject, called to me as I was leaving the boarding house on my way to the examination hall. There is Ramesh shouting for you, a classmate said to me impatiently. Don't return. We should be late at the hall. Ignoring the advice, I ran back to the house. Usually, the Bengali examination is easily passed by our Bengali boys, Ramesh said, but I have just had a hunch that this year the professors have planned to massacre the students by asking questions about the required reading books. He then outlined two stories from the life of Vidyasagar, the renowned Bengali philanthropist of the 19th century. I thanked Ramesh and quickly bicycled to the hall. There I found that the examination sheet in Bengali contained two parts. The first instruction was, Give two instances of the charities of Vidyasagar. As I transferred to the paper the law that I had so recently acquired, I whispered a few words of thanksgiving that I had heeded Ramesh's last-minute summons. Had I been ignorant of Vidyasagar's benefactions, which now included one to me, I could not have passed the Bengali examination. The second instruction on the sheet read, Write an essay in Bengali on the life of the man who has most inspired you. Gentle reader, I need not inform you what man I chose for my theme. As I covered page after page with praise of my guru, I smiled to realize that my muttered prediction was coming true. I will fill up the sheets with your teachings. I had not felt inclined to question Ramesh about my course in philosophy. Trusting my long training under Sri Yukteswar, I safely disregarded the textbook explanations. The highest mark given to any of my papers was the one in philosophy. My score in all other subjects was just barely within the passing mark. It is a pleasure to record that my unselfish friend Ramesh received his own degree cum laude. Father was wreathed in smiles at my graduation. I hardly thought you would pass, Mukunda, he confessed. You spend so much time with your guru. Master had indeed correctly detected the unspoken criticism of my father. For years I had been uncertain that I would ever see the day when an A.B. could follow my name. I seldom used the title without reflecting that it was a divine gift, conferred on me for reasons somewhat obscure. Occasionally I hear college men remark that very little of their crammed knowledge remained with them after graduation. That admission consoles me a bit for my undoubted academic deficiencies. On the day in June 1915, 
that I received my degree from Calcutta University, I knelt at my Guru's feet and thanked him for all the blessings flowing from his life into mine. Get up, Mukunda, he said indulgently. The Lord simply found it more convenient to make you a graduate than to rearrange the sun and moon. Chapter 24 I Become a Monk of the Swami Order Master, my father has been anxious for me to accept an executive position with the Bengal Nagpur Railway, but I have definitely refused it. I added hopefully, Sir, will you not make me a monk of the Swami order? I looked pleadingly at my guru. During preceding years, in order to test the depth of my determination, he had refused the same request. Today, however, he smiled graciously. Very well, tomorrow I will initiate you into Swamihood. He went on quietly, I am happy that you have persisted in your desire to be a monk. Lahiri Mahashai often said, If you don't invite God to be your summer guest, he won't come in the winter of your life. Dear Master, I could never relinquish my wish to belong to the Swami order like your revered self. I smiled at him with measureless affection. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. I had analysed the lives of many of my friends who, after undergoing certain spiritual discipline, had then married, launched on the sea of worldly responsibilities, they had forgotten their resolutions to meditate deeply. To a lot the Lord a secondary place in life was to me inconceivable. He is the sole owner of the cosmos, silently showering man with gifts from life to life. There is but one gift man may offer in return, his love which he is empowered to withhold or bestow. In taking infinite pains to shroud with mystery his presence in the atoms of creation, the Creator could have had but one motive, one sensitive desire, that man seek him only through free will. With what velvet glove of every humility has he not covered the iron hand of omnipotence? The following day was one of the most memorable in my life, it was a sunny Thursday, I remember, in July 1915, a few weeks after my graduation from college. On the inner balcony of his Serampore hermitage, Master dipped a new piece of white silk into a dye of ochre, the traditional colour of the Swami order. After the cloth had dried, my guru draped it around me as a renunciant's robe. Some day you will go to the West, where silk is preferred, he said. As a symbol, I have chosen for you this silk material instead of the customary cotton. In India, where monks embrace the ideal of poverty, a silk-clad swami is an unusual sight. Many yogis, however, wear garments of silk which retains certain subtle bodily currents better than cotton. I am adverse to ceremonies, Sri Yukteswar remarked. I will make you a swami in the bidwat, non-ceremonious manner. The Bibidisa, or elaborate initiation into Swamihood, includes a fire ceremony, during which symbolical funeral rites are performed. The physical body of the disciple is represented as dead, cremated in the flame of wisdom. The newly made Swami is then given a chant, such as, This Atma is Brahma, 
or Thou art that, or I am he. Sri Yukteswar, however, with his love of simplicity, dispensed with all formal rites, and merely asked me to select a new name. I will give you the privilege of choosing it yourself, he said, smiling. Yogananda, I replied, after a moment's thought. The name means Bliss Ananda, through divine union, Yoga. Be it so. Forsaking your family name of Mukunda Lal Ghosh, henceforth you should be called Yogananda of the Giri branch of the Swami order. I then knelt before Sri Yukteswar, and for the first time heard him pronounce my new name, my heart overflowed with gratitude. How lovingly and tirelessly had he laboured that the boy Mukunda be some day transformed into the monk Yogananda. I joyfully sang a few verses from the long Sanskrit chant of Lord Shankara. Mind, nor intellect, nor ego, feeling. Sky, nor earth, nor metals am I. I am He. I am He. Blessed Spirit, I am He. No birth, no death, no caste have I. Father, mother have I none. I am He. I am He. Blessed Spirit, I am He. Beyond the flights of fancy, formless am I, permeating the limbs of all life. Bondage I do not fear, I am free, ever free. I am He, I am He. Blessed Spirit, I am He. Every Swami belongs to the monastic order that has been honoured in India from time immemorial. Reorganized in its present form centuries ago by Shankaracharya, it has since been headed by an unbroken line of venerable teachers, each of whom successively bears the title of Jagadguru Sri Shankaracharya. Many monks, perhaps a million, make up the Swami order. To enter it, they fulfill a requirement to receive initiation from men who themselves are Swamis. All monks of the Swami order thus trace their spiritual lineage to a common guru, Adi, the first, Shankaracharya. They take their vows of poverty, non-attachment to possessions, chastity, and obedience to the head or spiritual authority. In many ways, the Catholic Christian monastic orders resemble the more ancient order of Swamis. To his new name, a Swami adds a word that indicates his formal connection with one of the ten subdivisions of the Swami order. These Dasanamis, or ten Agnomens, include the Giri, mountain, to which Swami Sri Yukteswar Giri, and hence I myself, belong. Among the other branches are Sagara, sea, Bharati, land, Puri, tract, Saraswati, wisdom of nature, Tirtha, place of pilgrimage, and Aranya, forest. A Swami's monastic name, which usually ends in Ananda, supreme bliss, signifies his aspiration to attain emancipation through a particular path, state, or divine quality, love, wisdom, discrimination, devotion, service, yoga. His agnomen indicates harmony with nature. The ideal of selfless service to all mankind, 
and of renunciation of personal ties and ambitions, leads most Swamis to engage actively in humanitarian and educational work in India or occasionally in foreign lands. Discarding prejudices of caste, creed, class, colour, sex and race, a Swami follows the precepts of human brotherhood. His goal is absolute unity with spirit. Imbuing his waking and sleeping consciousness with the thought, I am he, he roams contentedly, in the world but not of it. Thus only may he justify his title of Swami, one who seeks to achieve union with the Swa, or Self. Sri Yukteswar was both a Swami and a Yogi. A Swami, formerly a monk by virtue of his connection with the Venerable Order, is not always a Yogi. Anyone who practices a scientific technique for divine realization is a Yogi. He may be either married or unmarried, either a man of worldly responsibilities or one of formal religious ties. A Swami may conceivably follow only the path of dry reasoning, of cold renunciation, but a yogi engages himself in a definite step-by-step -step procedure by which the body and mind are disciplined and the soul gradually liberated. Taking nothing for granted on emotional grounds or by faith, a yogi practices a thoroughly tested series of exercises that were first mapped out by the ancient rishis. In every age of India, yoga has produced men who became truly free, true yogi Christs. Like any other science, yoga is applicable by people of every clime and time. The theory advanced by certain ignorant writers that yoga is dangerous or unsuitable for Westerners is wholly false and has lamentably deterred many sincere students from seeking its manifold blessings. Yoga is a method for restraining the natural turbulence of thoughts, which otherwise impartially prevents all men of all lands from glimpsing their true nature of spirit. Like the healing light of the sun, yoga is beneficially equal to men of the East and to men of the West. The thoughts of most persons are restless and capricious. A manifest need exists for yoga, the science of mind control. The ancient Rishi Patanjali defines yoga as neutralization of the alternating waves in consciousness. His short and masterly work, Yoga Sutras, forms one of the six systems of Hindu philosophy. In contradistinction to Western philosophies, all six Hindu systems embody not only theoretical teachings, but practical ones also. After pursuing every conceivable ontological inquiry, the Hindu systems formulate six definite disciplines aimed at the permanent removal of suffering and the attainment of timeless bliss. The later Upanishads uphold the Yoga Sutras among the six systems as containing the most efficacious methods for achieving direct perception of truth. Through the practical techniques of yoga, man leaves behind forever the barren realms of speculation and cognizes in experience the veritable essence. The yoga system of Patanjali is known as the Eightfold Path. The first steps are 1. Yama, moral conduct, and 2. Niyama, 
religious observances. Yama is fulfilled by non-injury to others, truthfulness, non-stealing, continence, and non-covetousness. The Niyama prescripts are purity of body and mind, contentment in all circumstances, self-discipline, self-study, contemplation, and devotion to God and Guru. The next steps are three, asana, right posture, the spinal column must be held straight, and the body firm in a comfortable position for meditation. Four, pranayama, control of prana, subtle life currents. And five, pratyahara, withdrawal of the senses from external objects. The last steps are forms of yoga proper. Six, dharana, concentration, holding the mind to one thought. Seven, dhyana, meditation. And eight, samadhi, superconscious experience. This eightfold path of yoga leads to the final goal of kaivalya, absoluteness, in which the yogi realizes the truth beyond all intellectual apprehension. Which is greater, one may ask, a swami or a yogi? If and when oneness with God is achieved, the distinctions of the various paths disappear. The Bhagavad Gita, however, has pointed out that the methods of yoga are all-embracing. Its techniques are not meant only for certain types and temperaments, such as those few persons who incline towards the monastic life. Yoga requires no formal allegiance. Because the yogic science satisfies a universal need, it has a natural, universal appeal. A true yogi may remain dutifully in the world. There he is like butter on water, and not like the unchurned, easily diluted milk of undisciplined humanity. Fulfilling one's earthly responsibilities need not separate man from God, provided he maintains mental uninvolvement with egotistical desires and plays his part in life as a willing instrument of the divine. There are a number of great men, living today in America or European or other non-Hindu bodies, who, though they may never have heard the words yogi and swami, are yet true exemplars of those terms. Through their disinterested service to mankind, or through their mastery over passions and thoughts, or through their single-hearted love of God, or through their great powers of concentration, they are, in a sense, yogis. They have set themselves the goal of yoga, self-control. These men could rise even to greater heights if they were taught the definite science of yoga, which makes possible a more conscious direction of one's mind and life. Yoga has been superficially misunderstood by certain Western writers, but its critics have never been its practitioners. Among many thoughtful tributes to yoga may be mentioned one by Dr. C. G. Jung, the famous Swiss psychologist. When a religious method recommends itself as scientific, it can be certain of its public in the West. Yoga fulfills this expectation, Dr. Jung writes. Quite apart from the charm of the new and the fascination of the half-understood, there is good cause for yoga to have many adherents. It offers the possibility of controllable experience and thus satisfies the scientific need for facts. And besides this, by reason of its breadth and depth, 
its venerable age, its doctrine and method, which include every phase of life, it promises undreamt-of possibilities. Every religious or philosophical practice means a psychological discipline, that is, a method of mental hygiene. The manifold, purely bodily procedures of yoga, Dr. Jung here is referring to Hatha Yoga, also mean a physiological hygiene which is superior to ordinary gymnastics and breathing exercises, inasmuch as it is not merely mechanistic and scientific, but also philosophical in its training of the parts of the body, it unites them with the whole of the spirit, as is quite clear, for instance, in the pranayama exercises, where prana is both the breath and the universal dynamics of the cosmos. Yoga practice would be ineffectual without the concepts on which yoga is based. It combines the bodily and the spiritual in an extraordinarily complete way. In the East, where these ideas and practices have developed, and where for several thousand years an unbroken tradition has created the necessary spiritual foundations, yoga is, as I can readily believe, the perfect and appropriate method of fusing body and mind together so that they form a unity which is scarcely to be questioned. This unity creates a psychological disposition which makes possible intuitions that transcend consciousness. Many uninformed persons speak of yoga as Hatha Yoga or consider yoga to be magic, dark, mysterious rites for attaining spectacular powers. Hatha Yoga is a specialized branch of bodily postures and techniques for health and longevity. Hatha is useful and produces spectacular physical results. But this branch of yoga is little used by yogis bent on spiritual liberation. When scholars, however, speak of yoga, they mean the system expounded in Yoga Sutras, also known as Patanjali's aphorisms, Raja, Royal Yoga. The treatise embodies philosophic concepts of such grandeur as to have inspired commentaries by some of India's greatest thinkers, including the illuminated master Sadasivendra. Like the other five orthodox Vedas-based philosophical systems, Yoga Sutras considers the magic of moral purity, the Ten Commandments of Yama and Niyama, to be the indispensable preliminary for sound philosophical investigation. This personal demand, not insisted on in the West, has bestowed lasting vitality on the six Indian disciplines. The cosmic order, Rita, that upholds the universe, is not different from the moral order that rules man's destiny. He who is unwilling to observe the universal moral precepts is not seriously determined to pursue truth. Section 3 of Yoga Sutras mentions various yogic miraculous powers, vibhutis and siddhis. True knowledge is always power. The path of yoga is divided into four stages, each with its vibhuti expression. Achieving a certain power, the yogi knows that he has successfully passed the tests of one of the four stages. Emergence of the characteristic powers is evidence of the scientific structure of the yoga system. 
wherein delusive imaginations about one's spiritual progress are banished. Proof is required. Patanjali warns the devotee that unity with spirit should be the sole goal, not the possession of vibhutis, the merely incidental flowers along the sacred path. May the eternal giver be sought, not his phenomenal gifts. God does not reveal himself to a seeker who is satisfied with any lesser attainment. The striving yogi is therefore careful not to exercise his phenomenal powers, lest they arouse false pride and distract him from entering the ultimate state of Kaivalya. When the yogi has reached his infinite goal, he exercises the vibhutis, or refrains from exercising them just as he pleases. All his actions, miraculous or otherwise, are then performed without karmic involvement. The iron filings of karma are attracted only where a magnet of the personal ego still exists. The Western day is nearing when the inner science of self-control will be found as necessary as the outer conquest of nature. The atomic age will see men's minds sobered and broadened by the now scientifically indisputable truth that matter is in reality a concentrate of energy. The human mind can and must liberate within itself energies greater than those within stones and metals, lest the material atomic giant, newly unleashed, turn on the world in mindless destruction. An indirect benefit of mankind's concern over atomic bombs may be an increased practical interest in the science of yoga, a bomb-proof shelter, truly.